when we come together to worship God. Turn your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Please take your Bibles out and go to Matthew 26. Go to Matthew 26 in your Bible. Go to Lesson 6 in your workbook. Hopefully, if you're a member here, you do have a workbook. You've been going through your workbook. We may have some copies of the lesson today available. Uh, if you don't have a workbook, uh, I think we may have some copies available uh, for you. Uh, they're on the uh, table there, right there, right outside the door there. Today we want to study about the events that took place on the Wednesday. We're on Wednesday of the last week of Jesus. We are continuing to consider the most important week in the history of the world, the last week of Christ, the last week of our Savior. Before we dive into what happened on Wednesday, let's bow our heads and let's say a prayer together. Let's pray. Holy God, our Father, thank you, Father, for another day of life and health and strength. Thank you, Father, for the blessing you've given us today to be able to come here in a free country, to worship you, to study from your word, to encourage each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, continue to be with us as we study about this most important week in human history, the last week of Jesus. Help us, Father, get good understanding, make proper application, leave here strengthened together as a spiritual family. Father, be with all the Bible class teachers today, be with all the students, be with our children, that everything we do during these next few minutes and this hour during this study be to your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're looking at Wednesday. Wednesday of the last of the last week of Christ. This is where we are so far. We have Saturday, you know, that was the a significant event that took place at, at Simon's, Simon the leper's home. That's the anointing of Jesus by Mary. And the key event that really got Judas upset and probably seriously motivate him to go and stab Jesus in the back. Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Monday, the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus cleansed the temple. Tuesday, a lot of teaching, a lot of debates, a lot of confrontations with the religious leaders. We also found on Tuesday, Jesus going in details about the signs that would precede the destruction of Jerusalem. And on Wednesday, we're talking about the plot, the plot to kill Jesus. The key things we want to focus on in this lesson it's the plot to kill Jesus by the religious leaders who, who hated him. The pot has been really boiling over at this time, and they're, they're at a point now where they just want to do whatever they have to do to get rid of him because too many people are listening to him. He's exposing their corruptness to, to all of Israel. He's threatening their power and their influence, and they want him out of the way. These are corrupt men, and they want to get Jesus out of the way because he's telling too much truth particularly truth about them and their corruptness. We got the betrayal of Judas and the work of Satan, and that's really the foundation of all of this. All these first two things are all be taking place all because of Satan's influence and his work. He's very busy at this time. Don't lose track of that, please. Let's go to Matthew 26. Let's go ahead and set up our Bible study by reading the first five verses, okay? Then we're going to get to those questions in Lesson 6. Matthew 26 and verse 1. 
Now, this is after Jesus had talked about the destruction of Jerusalem and his second personal coming. The second personal coming teaching of Jesus and what is called the Olivet Discourse begins in verse number 36 of Matthew 24. That goes all the way through Matthew 26, 24, I'm sorry, 36 through chapter 25. That's my understanding of that. And in Matthew 26 and verse 1, it says, When Jesus has finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. After two days. And we're thinking about this from a Jewish perspective. That lets us know we're on Tuesday, the way they count at times. Tuesday, you got Wednesday, and then the Passover is on Thursday. And the Son of Man is handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, or Caiaphas, however you want to say that. And they plied together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival. A lot of people in Jerusalem at this time because of the Passover. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. So let's go ahead and look at these questions. Let's, let's go ahead and knock lesson six out today. I want to hear from you on this. This is not really a right or wrong answer thing. Uh, so let's not be dogmatic on this. What did Jesus likely do on the Wednesday before he's crucified? Somebody give me an answer you put down. Prayer, prayer solitude, someone else? Rest, prayer, solitude, rest. Meditation, teach. So we got prayer, solitude, rest, meditation, teach. Anything else? Yeah, spending time with the apostles, all that. Hey, everything y'all said is very possible because guess what? We see him doing it on the other days, right? That's good stuff. That's, that's really good stuff. Fasting, absolutely, sure. Wednesday is the most uncertain of all the days in the last week of Christ. You know why? Because the Bible doesn't say what Jesus did exactly on Wednesday. Maybe he just rested. You know, some people need rest. Even Jesus needed rest. You know why? He's a man. I mean, think about how exhausting Tuesday was. You know, all that debating and all that teaching. I mean, then you walking from Bethany to Jerusalem. Sometimes people just need a day to rest. Preachers need days to rest. You know that? Our day to rest is Monday usually, but <laughs> unless Rick Wildling call you at 10 o'clock at night to come for a baptism, that's, that's, another, uh, <laughs> that's another story. But, uh, you know, preachers need rest. Brother Gary, yes, sir. How hard would it be for him to rest on one that was coming? I was thinking about that when you said that. Absolutely. It definitely would be hard to rest mentally. Mentally. I agree with that. So maybe there's a day of physical rest, meditation, prayer. Maybe he just went back to the temple and kept teaching. Maybe he did that. I don't know. We don't know for certain. But you know, we can be certain of on Wednesday. We can't be certain of what Jesus did. We can't be certain though of what the devil was doing. We can be certain of what these religious leaders were doing on Wednesday. We can be certain of what Judas was doing on Wednesday. 
So let's talk a little bit about these verses in Matthew 26. After the verses I read for you, you see verses 6 down to verse number 13. There's that incident again of what happened at the house of Simon the leper. The incident, the incident of Mary anointing Jesus and the controversy that came from that, particularly from Judas and how he felt about that. Don't get confused as to where this incident is, incident is placed in Matthew. Don't get confused by that. Remember, the Gospels are not always written in chronological order. We like things in chronological order as part of our Western thinking. But the gospel writers always put things in chronological order. Matthew is not putting this incident in chronological order here. John does, though. Remember? John in John 12 places this incident where it really took place. That is the day before the triumphal entry on Saturday. John puts this in chronological order. Matthew and Mark in their accounts do not. And they do not for a reason. They're doing, they're doing something very strategic by placing the incident at Simon the leper's home where they do. Notice the context. In the first five verses, or really the three verses three through five, I'm sorry. In verses three through five, you got this meeting with the religious leaders. You see that? They got this meeting. And they're like, we got to get rid of him. We got to get rid of this guy. But well, we gotta be careful when we do it. Why? Because of the people. There's a lot of people here who respect Jesus, and if we seize them in public, we might start a riot. So they're plotting. They're plotting right now. And then Matthew strategically puts this episode about what happened at the house of Simon the leper right after that. And then in verse 14, he mentions who? Judas. He mentions Judas. What Matthew is doing and what Mark is doing in his account, by placing this incident where they place it, is they are giving us details or showing us how the plan or the plot of the religious leaders came to fruition. How they got to where they were trying to get to. Now, we know the obvious big picture thing that's going on here is God is letting all this go on. We know that. I get that. We know that. But aside from that, Matthew and Mark want us to understand what's going on behind the scenes. The religious leaders want to get Jesus. They want to get him in private. They want to get him in a vulnerable situation where the crowds won't get in their way and start a riot. Judas is mentioned right after that. His getting embarrassed and smacked down by Jesus at the house of Simon the leper gave the religious leaders the avenue they were looking for. Judas is bitter about what happens. He goes to them and he's willing to sell out Jesus and tell them where they could get him in private so they could then carry out their plans. Matthew is doing that strategically. This incident at the house of Simon the leper is mentioned in Matthew as a flashback. It's a flashback. And that's how Mark also does it in his account. It's telling us how the religious leaders were able to carry out their plans. That the plans they're trying to make in verses 3 through 5. 
They're able to carry it out through Judas. Through Judas. And so, let's go back to question two. We don't know what the Lord did on Wednesday exactly. Everything y'all said is very possible. Good answers. But what we do know is, according to the Bible, the enemies were busy. Judas was busy. Question two. What did Jesus remind his apostles of in Matthew 26 and verse 2? What did he remind them of? Yes. Yes. He says, I'm going to be crucified. And look at the, look at the language, handed over. Handed over for crucifixion. So Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows who he's going to be betrayed by. He knows exactly when he's going to be betrayed, when he's going to be arrested, and, and when he's going to be handed over for, for crucifixion. What I just want you to see is Jesus knew everything that was coming. He's in full control of the situation. He's in full control. This is actually the fourth time, the fourth time just in the Gospel of Matthew where we find Jesus predicting what was going to happen to him as far as his betrayal and his crucifixion. He does that at least four times. There's Matthew, you got Matthew 16. Uh, I think there's, there's Matthew 20. There's several times in Matthew where Jesus is trying to tell his apostles, I know what's coming. And they didn't believe him. In fact, one time Peter tried to stand in the way of what was going to happen. And Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's in full control of the situation. He's only letting these things take place because it is the will of God. Question three, the chief priests and the elders, as they're having this meeting and plotting together, where are they gathered? Where are they gathered? They're at the house of the high priest, Caiaphas. Uh, I actually was able to go to the courtyard of Caiaphas, of the, of the home of Caiaphas. They built a church on top of the area where Caiaphas had his his home is actually called the Church of, of um, the Church of the of the Rooster Crows, or named it after the incident we have with Peter. Um, and um, it's interesting that when you keep reading this, and particularly watch out for this when you as you keep reading John this week, there are actually two high priests in Israel at this time. Okay. There's Caiaphas, but there's another one mentioned. You remember that guy's name? Annas. Annas is mentioned. So someone says, what gives? I mean, we're supposed to have one high priest. Well, there's some political stuff going on here, too. There was a high priest that the Jews recognized as a legitimate one through the lineage of Aaron and, and how the old law prescribed it, and that was Annas. This is why the Jews brought Jesus to Annas first. They did that out of respect for him because he was recognized as a legitimate high priest in their eyes. The other high priest is Caiaphas, and he was set up by the Romans. In fact, he's related to Annas, isn't he? Uh, what was the, I forgot the relation, Don. Father, Father so there's the, I knew they were related in some way. So just, there's no, there's no contradiction there, but there's, there's some political stuff here. You have one that's recognized as legitimate by the Jews, Another one put in, in place by the Romans, okay? But this meeting is taking place at the, at the house of Caiaphas. They're meeting about how to get rid of Jesus, how to take him, how to kill him. What was the problem again 
What was the what was the main problem they were having? Why they got to have this meeting? What, what was why can't they just go get Jesus? What was the main problem they had? The people. The, they're worried about the people because <laughs> they know this is corrupt and they know Jesus is innocent. So they got to do things in secret. So so that's the problem. How can we get this guy without causing a big situation, a big fuss in Jerusalem? Question four. Why did Judas go to the chief priest and how did the chief priest respond? So when you look at verses 14, write this down, verses 14 through 16. Why did Judas go to the chief priest? Because he goes to them. Why does he go to them? He's angry and he wants to see what? What they will give him. What you're going to give me? What you're going to give me for? Uh, what you're going to give me and I'll. Yeah, what's it worth to you? Yeah, what's it worth to you? What is it worth to you? So, again, you have the Titus back to the events that took place when Mary anointed Jesus, and he's, he's fed up. And I'm just going to tell you all this, and I've told you this before. I think Judas had this thing played out in his mind a little bit differently. Remember, he's been with Jesus for three years, and he's seen Jesus get out of numerous situations. I mean, how many times in the Bible can we read about Jesus about to be stoned or taken by the Jews in some kind of way through the providence of God, what happens? He just gets out of there. Yeah, he just he maneuvers some kind of way and gets out of there. So Judas has seen this a lot. But this time he's like, I'm going to get some money this time. I'm going to get some money. So I think he's got this played out differently in his mind. And I think he's shocked when he realizes eventually that Jesus doesn't just get out of it this time. He doesn't just get out of it. So what is it to you, like, like you said? And what did they weigh out to him? That's an interesting number. Remember, I told you why that's interesting. That's interesting because that 30 piece of silver would have been 10% of the amount of money they were suggesting they sell the perfume for. And remember what Judas was in the, in the group. He was what? He was a treasurer. And John also tells us that when it came to the treasurer of all people, what was he doing with the treasury? He was stealing it. Now, Austin is a good man. Austin's my friend, okay? He's a treasurer. But I, I think even Mitch would say if Austin was doing like Judas, he wouldn't be the treasurer very long, would he? Now, Austin would never do that. But I'm just saying, that's the last person you want to be the treasurer, somebody who's stealing, stealing from the Lord's money. That's what Judas was doing. And, and, and so it seems like he's trying to get his profit still, 10%. That's what, he, that's what they weigh out to him. That was the price. That's what it was worth, 10% of the, of the price they were going to sell the perfume for, 30 pieces of silver. Question five, why did the chief priests want to use Judas to get access to Jesus? What did y'all put there? What, what was that about? Okay. Yeah, but still their hands would not be clean. They, but their main, it goes back to their main problem. What's their main problem? We can't get him. We got, every time we see this guy, he's in public. Every Got to get somebody on the inside. Because every time they saw him, it's at the temple. And it's a bunch of people around, and he's revealing their corruptness, and he's teaching. They don't know what Jesus likes to do in his private time. They don't know where they can get him outside of the temple. You got to have somebody close on the inside who knows that. 
And we have that same thing, right? I mean, I guarantee you that you have people that we're all friends here. We all love each other. We're friends. But there are some people here in this congregation that you're probably closer to than other people. And that human nature, that's how human nature works. And there are some people here in this church who know some things about you that other people may not know because you're closer to them. You understand? You know things about your hobbies and where you like to go, what you like to do. I mean, that's just human nature. We all got people like that. And so the religious leaders, they're trying to figure out how can we get this guy in private. Well, the only way we can know that is we got to get somebody in the inner circle. That's where Judas comes in. Judas is going to tell them where they can get Jesus away from the temple. He knows where Jesus goes in his spare time where there's nobody around to stop anything. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas knows about that. And, and let's, just, let's just highlight this again. Look at verse 5 again. Matthew 26, 5. They, the leaders, were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. We can't do this in public. Look at Matthew 21. Go back to Matthew 21, verse 45. This is taking place on Tuesday. And, and you know, they were, Jesus was making them mad then. And notice what the problem was going back to even Tuesday. Matthew 21, 45, verse 45. When Jesus kept teaching all those parables about how God was going to bring judgment on, the, on Israel and the leaders, it says when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they wanted to get him right there in the temple. They feared the people, notice, because they considered him to be a prophet. We can't do this publicly. There's no way we can get away with this. And then how the devil works, he works in darkness, doesn't he? He works behind the scenes, in the dark. That's how the devil works. Okay, question six. We got the first part, 30 pieces of silver. That's how much money was offered to betray Jesus. Really not a whole lot of money, relatively speaking. Really not at all. And Judas accepts it. Verse 16, notice what it says in verse 16 going back to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 when they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver, it says from then on, from then on, he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. So I've, I've accepted this deal. When, when can I give these guys a good opportunity to get Jesus? He's got his money. Now let's talk a little bit about this next question, question seven. The Satan is mentioned here in this text, and, and, and it's easy to forget about him. When studying the Bible and even studying, studying the last week of Christ, it's easy to just focus on these religious leaders and the devil kind of just gets off the radar. And that's how he likes it. He likes being off the radar. He loves it when we don't think about him because that's when he can do his best work. When we don't think about him and we're not aware of his presence. So what does Satan do to Judas according to what the scripture says? What did y'all get there? Yes. Yes, whatever God allowed him to do, and somebody else said what? Entered his heart. Go to Luke chapter 22. Look at Luke 22, verse 3. Write this verse down. Luke 22, verse 3 says, After saying that the chief priests were afraid to arrest Jesus in public because of the people, 
it says, and Satan entered into Judas, who is called, was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of, 12, of the twelve. Let me ask y'all a question. And I just want to hear a couple of answers on this. How does Satan do that? How does Satan enter a person's heart? How did he enter Judas' heart? Anybody? Can, can you just raise your hand, please, and give us an answer? Brother Ryan, yes, sir. You let him in your heart. It's a choice you're saying. Good answer. Anyone else? Brother Gary. He didn't fight it. Brother Gary said it's when the devil tempts us and we don't fight it. We just get right into him. Right, Gary? Yes, ma'am, Sister Margie. Finds your weakness and exploits that. Everything y'all saying, I agree with it 100%. I, I put on my paper, you know, Satan can enter your heart through, his, through influ his influence. When he influences you, when he tempts you, and you give in to that temptation, you've let him in then. Satan can only get in if we let him in. James says, flee. Uh, what is he? Resist the devil, I'm sorry, and he will what? Flee from you. It's a choice involved here. Brother Don, yes, sir. That's exactly right. Go, go in your Bible to Acts, please. Acts chapter 5. This is not the only time we read about this taking place in the life of a disciple. Acts chapter 5, verse number 1. Acts 5, verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan done, done what? Filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. Satan enters the hearts of the disciples when he brings temptations before them, when he influences them through various means to commit evil, and they give in to his influence. They give in to his temptation. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they want to look good in front of the congregation. You know, you got people like Barnabas who are selling all their property or selling property, I'm sorry, and giving all the proceeds to help needy disciples. And Ananias and Sapphira see that and they're like, OK, we want that same commendation. And so they sell property, but they don't give all the money. They give only a portion. Now, was that still a good thing to give a portion? Absolutely. <laughs> that was great. Did God ever say you got to give it all? God never said that. If you want to give it all or give half or a quarter, anything to help your brothers and sisters, that's fine. God is glorified. The problem with these people was not that they didn't give it all. God never requires that. The problem was they lied. They, they wanted to appear to be more generous than they really were because they cared about what other people would, would say about them. That was the problem. And Satan was involved in that. He didn't do anything supernatural. He just tempted them with lying and you know worrying about what people think about you and commendation and they gave in to that 
Satan knows our weaknesses. The weakness of Ananias and Sapphira was clearly lying and pride. And the weakness of Judas was clearly money, loving money. Brother Mitch, yes, sir. No, go, go ahead. Hey, that's a great question, and it's it's hard to fathom it. I'll just say two things about it, Midget, and this may may not be right on point, but I really believe, number one, oh, yes. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Mitch was saying that it's hard for him. If I'm saying this wrong, Mitch, correct me. He said Judas had the ability to do miracles. He had the ability to do everything else the other apostles did because Jesus gave them that power. He was with Jesus for three years, and yet he sold out Jesus for about six weeks' salary. And it's hard to imagine how he could have done that. How can someone do that? I'm going I'm to tell you what I think about that, Mitch. Before I do, I think I want James, James, you got your, your hand up, sir. I can't recall anything. The only time Judas is ever mentioned in the Bible is always with the description of he's the betrayer. We don't learn about his lineage. We don't learn about what tribe he comes from. We don't even learn what he did as a profession before being a disciple. The only thing the Bible paints him as is a betrayer. That's it. I mean, unless I'm unless I'm missing some, some I mean, somebody can help me. That's all I remember seeing. And whoever that is, and that was a common name at that time. And that's another thing. We're going to get to that. But, but that's actually going to a next question. But that's good. So, Mitch, just going back to what you were saying, based on what I'm seeing here in the Bible, the two things I see working with Judas, and you're right, he did miracles. He was even, John 14 says, Jesus loved them all to the end. He was just as loved by Jesus as everybody else. He would have been forgiven by Jesus if, just like Peter was, had he repented. There's no doubt about that. But I see two things working with Judas. First, I think I see pride with this man. This man was clearly mad at Jesus. And maybe you've been in that situation before where somebody makes you mad. And all you can think about in that moment is I'm mad at them and I'm going to get back at them when you need to just cool off a little bit. I think he's bitter. And secondly, I think he's a lover of money. He's a lover of money. That's why he's stealing out the treasury. He loves money. And then thirdly, to add another thing to that, I also think, Mitch, that again, I don't think he thought Jesus was going to be crucified. I think he was thinking Jesus was going to get out of this just like the other many times for three years. But this time he gets some money out of it. I'm going to get my way still. I couldn't get, I couldn't get my way with this perfume from Mary. I'm going to get my way like this. I'm still going to get my, my money. And Jesus will get out of this. Like he always does. So, I mean, that's just what I see. But even with all that, Mitch, even with all that, sir, you see, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. But how many times have we known certain things about Jesus 
and, and things, and we still give in. Because we're like, well, I can just ask forgiveness later. God forgive me later. I'm going to go ahead and do this now. I ask forgiveness later. If we're not careful, we can have that same mindset. You know what I'm saying? We got to be careful. I think Judas took for granted the grace of Jesus and the power of Jesus, and we got to be careful with that too. But, but that's a good observation. So Satan entered the heart of this man through his influence, through his temptation. He does that over and over again. He did it with Ananias and Sapphira. Last two questions, and then I'll give you a chance to make some comments some more. Question eight, and, and Gary, you made some reference to this. Some others of you did, but let's just put it with this question. Why didn't Jesus stop all this nonsense? Why didn't he stop all this evil that was going on behind the scenes to kill him? What did y'all get on that? It had to be done. He chose to be the sacrifice. It had to be done. What did someone say over here? Yeah. Yeah. Prophecy. Prophecy had to be fulfilled. And, and that's actually going to take us to the next question. But yeah. Everything y'all are saying is on the money. Can I add to it this? He loves us that much. He loves me that much. He loves you that much. He could have stopped all this at any time. But Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up. He says, greater love has no one than this, that one do what? Lay down his life for his friends. Y'all are right. Prophecy has to be fulfilled. It's the will of God. All that is right on the money. But I also just want to add to that, he's thinking about us. If he doesn't do this, there's no point in us being here this morning. He's thinking about our, uh, me and you. He loves us that much. Brother Mike, yes, sir. Something came to mind was when Jesus healed the blind man, he said, who caused him to be blind? God said, it's, it's prophesied. He's here because of me. He's here. I need to do something. Yes. And you're going to see it. And I think, and you're right on money. It's prophesied. I know it's coming. I'm the creator. I think it's coming. Right. I know what has to happen. He knows what's going on. He knows exactly what's happening. Amen. That's, that's a good point. Brother Don, yes, sir. Not mixed metaphors, there's mixed ideas. In the beginning, God had a great plan. That plan included people, nations, and things that were going to happen to culminate in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus knew what the plan was. He knew the disciples to pick. He knew Peter was going to deny him and then turn around. He knew Right, which is a Gnostic gospel. Yeah. Right. Jesus knew all of these things, and we pre planned to happen, and he did not he did not manipulate to fulfill prophecy. Right. prophecy but he chose the people who were part of the plan. And so this and so these things could not supernaturally take place, but providentially providentially, providentially take place. Absolutely. No, you're right. So let me just say something else about this real quick. Do you remember when Jesus in the garden, Mike, you mentioned Jesus in the garden. Jesus said, when Peter cut off Malchus' ear, he said, do you not know? He said, put your sword away. Do you not know that I could call 12 legions of angels to come here and wipe out everything? 
Jesus could have done it at any time, and it would have happened just like that. I mean, if one angel could wipe out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in the time of King Hezekiah, what do you think 144,000, which is what 12 legions would be, 144,000 angels could do? Do the world over by 100 times. Jesus could have, done, could have stopped this, but it is the will of God. Jesus always submitted himself to the will of God. It was the will of God he go to the cross, and without that, we have no hope. He loves us, and he loves his Father. It was God's, the Father's plan from the beginning to exalt his Son to his right hand. And that would not be the easy path. It would be the path of the cross. The cross must, the, the path of the cross had to be taken by Jesus for his exaltation and for our salvation. And I thank God he didn't stop it. It's a terrible tragedy, the worst tragedy in the history of the world, that somebody like Jesus would die the death that he died. But I thank God it took place. Because it did, because it did took place, or took place, that means we can be here today with joy and hope. We can go to heaven. So I thank God for that. Now this last question, real quick, the Old Testament. Did anybody write some scriptures down? Where in the Old Testament are Judas' actions foretold? Give me some scriptures from the Old Testament. Say, say it again. Psalm 41.9. Write that down. Oh, man, not you. <laughs> not you. Oh, Margie. You did me like Jesus did the Pharisees. <laughs> oh, I got, a, got an egg on my face. Psalm 41.9. That's right. Okay, everybody but Margie, write that down. And then, what's another one? A more, what's another one? It's the one in Zechariah. Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. There, the scripture specifically mentions the 30 pieces of silver. Now, when looking at prophecy, it's important to understand that a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament are what are, what are called dual fulfillment prophecies. Dual fulfillment means they have two applications. They have an immediate application and they have a messianic application. A great example of this is when it says in the Old Testament, God's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Well, that's a dual fulfillment prophecy. And the immediate context is talking about God restoring Israel after Babylonian captivity. But in the messianic sense, it's a reference to John the Baptist and what he would do for Jesus. So that's how you got to treat, especially that prophecy that's found in Zechariah 11. It has a dual fulfillment to it. Uh, it has a, a, a fulfillment concerning Israel and then a messianic application. So this was part of prophecy. And you know one of the things that puzzles me, and I'll just say this, and I struggle with, is if these Jews are such good students of the Old Testament, if I'm doing something that, like, is going with a prophecy, a bad prophecy, I want to stay away from that. And yet they keep going down, I mean... I never understood. They like like when the enemies were saying exactly what the psalmist said they would say when the Messiah was on the cross. I mean, don't you realize you're saying exactly what the psalmist said? You would say, "I've always struggled with that." You know, the blind leading the blind. Well, let's stop right there. Okay, it's ten thirty. Uh, good comments, everybody. We will pick up with our next lesson. We're going to lesson seven, not this Wednesday, because I think there's a singing this Wednesday, right? It's going to be the next uh, next Sunday.